by the morning of the 9th, it was clear that things were going to happen. It was the kind of the calm before the storm, the, uh, the smell in the air when it's about to rain, as it were. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the ISN Global Kidney Care Podcast. I am Roberto Pequafilio, a nephrologist and co-chair of the ISN Education Workgroup. We felt it was important to meet the immediate needs of the community by presenting a series of conversations with those on the front lines of the COVID-19 crisis. Today, we start with part one of a conversation with two groups from the UK, one from London and the other from Salford, discussing their unique and contrasting experiences. Both parts of this conversation will be led by Dr. Smita Sinha, chair of the Northwest England Renal Network. We hope you come away informed and educated. Look for more COVID-19 conversations soon. And in June, the launch of the Global Kidney Care podcast in its more traditional format. Okay, well, let me introduce myself then. My name is John Prowl. I work at the Royal London Hospital, which is a major hospital in East London. Um, And I'm also a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, primarily, my clinical work is in intensive care, but I also have trained as a nephrologist, and a lot of my academic and uh, scientific interests are in acute kidney injury and renal replacement therapy in the ICU. Yeah, and my name is Biarsan Marlingasivan. Um, I'm a registrar in renal medicine, um, also working in East London. Um, at the moment, I'm doing general medicine at Whips Cross Hospital, um, which is um, one of the spokes from the Royal London where, where John works. Hello, my name is Dorothy Anich. I'm based at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and I'm also the Research Informatics Director at the UK Renal Registry. Okay, my name is James Tollett. I'm a consultant nephrologist uh, working out of Salford Royal, which is in the northwest of England. Uh, Salford is a hub renal service for about 1.5 million um, uh, patients um, got experience of uh, COVID disease professionally and also personally. Hi, my name is Tracy Murphy. I'm the Assistant Director of Nursing for um, the Division of Renal at Salford Royal Foundation Trust and I'm um, responsible for the workforce. Smita Sinner, I'm the uh, Northwest uh, Renal Network Chair for the Northwest of England. I'm also a nephrologist at Salford Royal, um, so have a little bit of clinical experience, but have predominantly been looking at the operational side of um, COVID-19 and renal disease. Okay, so thank you everyone for joining the, the podcast. So I think the first thing to do is probably to give people a feel for the UK position, and uh, I think Dorothy Inich is probably the best person to do that, so I'll hand over to Dorothy. Thank you. Yeah, so if, if anybody is interested in, in looking at UK epidemic national data, there's a government website that reports all these. And there you can see a very, very steep epidemic curve starting from March the 6th, and which then really accelerates around March the 26th and then goes up to now um, reported death of uh, over 25,000 um, by, by end of April. Um, and the daily, if you look at the daily numbers of reporting, they vary by day of the week, um, but smooth numbers look like it's coming slowly down in hospitals. So the national context is that the first case occurred on the 30th of Jan in the UK, and then for about a month, the PHE was 
doing contact tracing and isolation and then they realize that they just can't keep up on top of the epidemic and then the, the lockdown completely started on the 20th of March, although earlier there was already um, advice given to do self-isolation if you have symptoms compatible with COVID. At the Reno Registry, we, we watched this. The first two cases that I was aware of at, at registry level was in, in the week starting of 9th of March, the who were on dialysis. And um, at national level, we established a COVID-19 Reno data coordinating group, um, which carried out weekly meetings. Um, and with representatives from, from a range of, of, of regions and skills. And we were really thinking ahead of data, data needs, permissions to hold data, future linkages that we want to see. And we started a weekly data collection for reporting to the Reno Registry to help centers manage the outbreak and, and track the epidemic. For the week ending 22nd of April last week, um, we had 48 of the 51 centers in England reporting, so almost all of them, four of the five centers in Northern Ireland, one of the nine centers in Scotland, and four of the five centers in Wales who submitted COVID data to the Reno Registry. And um, 10 out of the 13 pediatric centers also re reported to us. And the cumulative number of uh, patients who are known to us at the Reno Registry at that point was 3,136. So to reiterate, we started from two patients uh, on dialysis in the week of the 9th of March. And now we are at, at 3,136. That's, that number is across all modalities uh, that we capture on the Reno Registry. Now, there are some issues with, with data collection. All these reports that are sent to us have, have different levels of validity because why would we know that somebody has, has COVID? Um, if, if somebody isn't admitted in our hospital, why would, uh, when would we actually hear about this? And if, if clinicians enter any data into a registry, why would they do it? So when we, when we look at these data at the registry, we are quite worried that, that we might get it wrong. Where we think we've got really, really good data is, is in hemodialysis because there's an interest for centers to know this. And London is certainly most affected. The, the biggest London center has, has over 200 uh, cases reported. Um, and, and it really took off around um, the week of the 13th of, of uh, March when it really accelerated very quickly. I wonder whether this is the point where people in London centers should actually Tell a little bit more of how they experienced this period. Yeah, so so we, we were really, really worried about this and knew that it was going to be quite an overwhelming challenge. Um, you know, just the thought of transmission taking place on the dialysis unit or um, even on the transport to the dialysis unit or in the waiting area um, was really sort of weighing heavily on our minds. And, um, you know, especially knowing that our patients are, are, are you know, very comorbid and a lot of them um, have at least some degree of frailty. You know, we, we really had to, to plan, you know, as far ahead in advance as, as possible. We needed to think about things like uh, escalation of care for patients in, in the event of respiratory failure or cardiac arrest. And, um, you know, I think the consultants at the units made sure that these were really considered for, for everyone and that we were making documented decisions in advance, especially um, at Wix Cross site where I'm based, it's a district general hospital and the patients get admitted uh, under general medicine and not necessarily by, by one of us. Around mid-March, um, we opened a COVID dialysis shift and, and that was done across all the, all the sites at, at Bart's Health, I think. Um, 
we have about 250 satellite dialysis patients at, at Wits Cross, um, and, and the main Royal London site is a few miles um, down the road. And, uh, and Wits is quite a big, sprawling um, DGH, and two of the, um, the dialysis units are based in the main hospital, whereas one is sort of quite remote and uh, by one of the car parks and has its own external access. So what we decided to do is make that the twilight shift on that unit, the, the sort of designated COVID shift. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, we dialyze all the, the confirmed COVIDs or, or the high suspicion COVIDs. And all the low suspicion ones we do on a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and then overnight the, the unit would be um, thoroughly cleaned. And we were really lucky that you know we, we did move very quickly, and we had a brilliant dialysis team who really just rose to the challenge, you know, well out of their comfort zone, and really went went their extra mile to to make it work. And yeah, you know, we we also do triage, so every patient who comes in for their dialysis gets triaged at the front door and they have their temperature checked and that's now being done by by medical students and, and patients have also been informed to to ring up in advance if, if they're feeling any of the symptoms so that we can then allocate them to the appropriate shift if necessary we've also got sort of walled off waiting areas if, if patients need to wait you know an extra few hours before they can get onto those those twilight shifts so it definitely took quite a lot of planning within a within a short period of time and you know a lot of resource management making sure that you know nurses have got access to scrubs and ppe and um and they're, they're comfortable with the donning and doffing of ppe and you know just it, it was definitely you know quite challenging times thankfully i think now it's working pretty pretty smooth and robust and you know hopefully now that the, the transmission seems to have gone down we're not really seeing very many patients presenting anymore has become quite manageable. Go back to that first two weeks in um, in London actually and, and it'd be good to get the view from the intensive care unit as well what that started to feel like in London because I know that in Salford on the um, 5th of March we went out for a team curry there were about 20 of us there and on the 7th of March it was International Women's Day so we had lots of uh, meetings and drinks and things happening and certainly didn't feel like we were about to start a pandemic um, response. So um, what what was it feeling like within the unit? You said you'd done a lot in those first two weeks, but what did it feel like in intensive care? And also, um, how long did you have to put all those preparations in? Um, From the point of view of the Royal London. So um, I... Uh, the the transition in terms of atmosphere was really very quick. I uh, on the third and fourth of March, I took a trip to Scandinavia to attend a meeting with um, some commercial sponsors, and uh, I spoke to some Norwegians then, and they were very concerned about a patient uh, a patient who'd sort of come into Norway from. Uh, Italy, who'd been, there was a doctor and been responsible for a number of transmissions, but this was kind of, you know, kind of quite an exciting event that was uh, potentially changing them and we hadn't really seen things like that yet. I came back to work and by the morning of the 9th, it was clear that things were going to happen. It was the kind of the calm before the storm, the, uh, the smell in the air when it's about to rain, as it were, and uh, that caused us, for instance, 
to cancel our um, the critical care MSc course that week and take that online. Uh, then I was on call the coming weekend of the 13th to 16th. And really what happened during that is we had quite a significant acceleration in the number of the cases. And we went from putting patients in side rooms, which is what we had at the beginning. We had three or four patient side rooms to cohorting them in bays in order to deal with really the, the, the intensity of the nursing that was required and with all the doffing and donning and the ability of nurses to work as a team, particularly when they were delivering complex interventions like RRT, really demanded that they all work together in a cohorted group. That was quite difficult and that was swiftly followed by really major changes in the way the ICU was structured, opening up of other areas, changes in the ICU nursing ratios, the breaking of a lot of things that had been written in tablets of stone for a long period of time. And really, there was tremendous uh, efforts to uh, step up what we were doing while we were still trying to understand the character of the illness. So I could go on for a long time talking about how our treatment has changed. I think maybe a little bit later in this discussion, we'll talk about acute kidney injury versus chronic kidney disease and end-stage renal failure in the COVID patients. Um, But uh, really, just from this point of view, uh, it all kind of accelerated in London around about the 10th to 16th. And during that week, I remember going up to the renal unit to discuss with my renal colleagues, who I I do occasionally do a few weeks a year on the renal unit. And first of all, we agreed that we weren't going to do our scheduled shifts on the renal unit, (coughs) me and my colleague Chris Kerwin. uh, We were going to devote ourselves to ICU. But we also discussed kind of admission criteria for ICU. And we were very, you know, um, I think encouraged by the fact that the the nephrologists were very cognizant of these issues and already started thinking about with the end-stage renal failure population about how to assess those who may or may not benefit and have discussions with patients prior to them getting sick. And also, I think a lot of effort went into advising the transplant population and the PD population. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's been enormously successful, actually, how well those populations have self-isolated and avoided the kind of burden of disease we've seen in the hemodialysis population. Yeah, so you guys had to mobilise quite quickly then. Um, So it looks like you only had about two weeks to get everything in place. Um, So it's probably an opportunity to flick over to the northwest of the country, where I think it um, is feeling a little bit better, shall we say. So um, can I bring um, Tracy and James in? So maybe James, if you start, because you were on call that... um, I think in the first week when we started to, to move along and then Tracy can talk about it from the MDT time as well. Yeah, so I, I would I'd share a couple of features of what John was talking about there. This was also a worrying time for us. Um, we were hearing updates in London, but also from the Lombardy region of Italy. Um, and again, there was a bit of an impending sense of, a sense of doom, but on the counterbalance was the fact that... Um, we had a feeling that there was a real opportunity to try and minimise disruption, set some plans in place and some structures in place and processes that essentially may minimise risk and minimise disruption as far as possible. And I think as a renal community uh, from the northwest, we probably should point out that we are very, very grateful for the information that was coming out of both Italy and also London at the same time. And a lot of this information was coming coming in real time. And again, the renal registry must be praised as well for, for how that information was translated to us so that we could really get a feel for what potential impact it was going to have on our, on our patient. 
I remember I was on um, I was on call on the uh, week commencing, I think the 6th of April. Um, so I was the clinician of the week. And I think that was the first week uh, that we'd ch- kind of changed our uh, consultant structure so that there was a, a COVID-specific uh, uh, consultant or certainly an outlying consultant who was dedicated all day to, to re- the renal outliers on other wards. And... Um, I looked back at an email that I'd sent on the Tuesday of that week. There was a definite trepidation in the email that I was that I'd written because I think on the Monday when I started, there were two two or three patients in our hospital, the renal patients in our hospital that would, um, had sort of COVID COVID disease. But that rapid, rapidly increased throughout mm-hmm. that week. It was certainly um, was certainly grateful for the fact that we'd we'd already restructured our working patterns and our working plans to, to help manage the increased um, number of patients uh, in our hospital uh, who were who were renal patients under the renal service. Tracy, I think from from a nursing perspective, um, obviously for for myself and for the for the for the workforce team, we had to sort of really sort of stop and think about how we were going to deliver our services um, safely to, to minimise as, um, as much risk to patients as possibly that we, we could. So we actually um, all got together. We had, we had a big footprint of our acute unit on site and we um, put plans in place to segregate that unit into uh, suspected patients. They all went into a side room and then we had a, an, an area of the unit where we put the confirmed patients and then we also had an area of our unit where we um, put contacted patients. But in order to do that, we had to relook up of all of our dialysis scheduling system we had to move all those patients off site to our um uh, other dialysis units um located um, throughout the northwest and we made them clean units um, and the sulfid unit which is on the acute hospital site was going to be our hot unit and what we done was similar to other units across the country that we screened every patient um that was coming through um to the units off site and also to the and anyone that was suspected of COVID, we um, made um, arrangements to transfer them directly to the hot unit so that we could keep our off-site facilities cold. And we were fortunate in that our, our acute ward at this trust, we were able to turn that into a cold ward. And again, the same process uh, put in place around screening patients as they and they came onto the ward. We put them in side rooms while we awaited the test to come back. Once that test was confirmed, if it was negative, they were able to stay on the ward. And obviously, if it was um, suspected and um, it was confirmed COVID, we would move them off onto a, another ward in the trust, um, which is a hot renal ward now as well. So um, obviously, that took a lot of planning. And um, as James said, you know, we've learned from London and we've learned from Italy. We were able to put our plans in place really quickly to try to minimise any cross-contamination with, with, within the acute and the off-site facilities. One of the things that's coming out is that um, I, the same level of pressure that we heard coming from London was perhaps not felt in in our unit. Um, would that yeah. be fair? Definitely, yeah. And I think, as, as we said, you know, learning from other areas and it put us in a fortunate position where we could plan um, so that we didn't have the same pressures. Yeah. Can I can I just interject here? So London really took off way earlier than other yeah. parts of the country, and so it really hit them. Um, and also, if you look at the the reproduction rate across across dialysis units, um, you see that that London started out with probably something like two point two, two point four, which is similar to what you see on the cruise ships. 
um, and similar to what was seen in the general population. And the shutdown came just around th those uh, two weeks when it really started to take off. So it came relatively late for, for the dialysis patients. So they, uh, they, at that point in time, if you think that it takes about five to 10 days for people to actually get symptoms after getting infected, it, it really then took off. Whereas, whereas units in other part of the country, if they weren't seeded by somebody and there was already a general lockdown in the country, they, they never developed that infection rate because everybody was already locked down and, and they, were, they were prepared and had arranged transport. Another thing that happened in London is that one of the consultants at Imperial basically just set up an epidemic model on his Excel spreadsheet uh, phoned, phoned me up and and we just, uh, with the help of an infectious disease model from the school, just thought about whether this kind of makes sense to just help London plan transport. Um, and then and then because it worked in the first few weeks, we just then distributed it across the UK. So, but, but we figured out in the last few weeks that actually the spreadsheet doesn't work anymore because, because the infection rate has come down, um, which is really good news. And, and yeah, as, as V has described, it's, it's much it's a bit less pressured now, but it, it really hit them. And I don't know whether anybody wants to talk about staff absences as well on, on dialysis. Yeah, units. I, I, I can it touch on it. I reflect very much on the rapidity of the of the rising cases here, um, certainly in northeast London. The last week of March, the first week of April, I've, I've never seen anything like it. And so we had an increasing caseload. We were trying to rejuggle really our, our systems and our structures. And at the same time, yes, our, some of our staff were getting sick. Um, and so every time we made our, what we thought were best laid plans to sort of, you know, move a dialysis shift or to isolate or to swab, the real sticking point came when, when doctors, nurses, therapists were unwell and off then for sustained periods of time. Luckily, the numbers are coming down and, and the staff absence is also returning to... Um, to a sort of a more manageable situation. I guess, thank God, our colleagues are, you know, have been okay. But certainly one of the hardest things about changing a rapidly evolving model and, and delivering service change was about finding the staff to, to deliver that. It was really tough. I, I wonder whether or not that, that was the experience up in, in um, the north of the country as well. So from a, from a nursing point of view, certainly, again, I think because we were ahead of the curve, ahead of the curve in terms of planning, that we we didn't feel the impact from a workforce perspective as other um, units have. Um, I think the only delay for me around workforce was those staff that did go off into isolation. Um, there was a bit of a delay in um, you know um, swabbing them, but once once we got on board with that, we were able to get people back really quickly. In all fairness, the sickness levels have been very low, so I've been quite fortunate at Salford. Um, and we've been able to get people back quickly. I think yeah. on the on the balance to that as well is that we've we did lose a lot of our specialist nurses to uh, uh, reallocation to critical care, which was necessary, of course. But that that had to be uh, countered into all of our planning and we've got a relatively large group of specialist nurses providing a lot of community input mm -hmm. um, to our maintenance uh, patients but also our, our chronic kidney disease patients um, and a lot of those services had to be re, uh, rejigged and re reassessed yeah. uh, because of because of reappropriation probably was the bigger problem or reallocation was the bigger problem mm -hmm. rather than um, yeah. staff sickness I think. And um, but everybody's everybody's actually worked above and beyond. They've been exceptional. And um, as we said, you know, we haven't we haven't felt a significant hit. Um, unfortunately, now uh, obviously physical care is de-escalating here. Um, our nurses are all coming back to us from Monday, which is um, really promising. So I think what you can what I take from this is there's 
the value of having a little bit of notice and learning from other units because we were fortunate in that obviously London is in, in the UK, but we have an Italian consultant colleague who was able to provide us updates from the very beginning of the Lombardy experience. So we had one early exposure and lessons from other places, but we also had the value of a, a lockdown that was that had been started, uh, access to testing um, and screening, um, which I know wasn't available um, across the, the country and isn't available in other countries at the moment. But you can see the stark difference between the London experience from just a pressure point of view versus the Northwest. And we never hit the peak that we were expected to. We, we also have an Italian uh, colleague here, and it was very, very informative. And it just also touches on not just sharing information within countries, but actually within the region and globally as well, how important it is. And I, I, I think that the Lombardi experience really helped us prepare psychologically and from a pragmatic point of view as well. Uh, Dorothy, I'm, I'm interested to know whether any dialysis units in the UK have zero recorded cases of coronavirus? Well, we are, we are completely dependent on, on what people report. So there are centers in Scotland who don't report to us. Um, but no, no, there's 1%, 1 to 15% of, 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 of patients are affected um, in, in the UK, at, at, in, the, in the centers that have reported to us. I remember from a, um, an editorial that went round in the middle of March, the experience of Lombardy and talking about a dialysis unit with 18 of their 60 dialysis patients suffering from some suffering from COVID, so um, that really struck struck home to us. I think um, when London was suffering, that the the Italian uh, the Italian experience was real and was directly applicable to potentially directly applicable to our um, our services as well. Yeah, so what we have at the registry is not necessarily across satellite and within satellites. So we just have the center experience, which is like uh, one to fifteen percent. But I know from from looking at data within London trusts that there were satellites that had really high levels of of COVID, so up to forty percent of patients affected, and they were primarily a minority, uh, very dense housing, uh, poor areas where where it really. Was, was a massive problem and, and it's not, uh, yeah, it was very, very sad and very, very challenging to deliver care for them. I think that's, that's one of the privileges of, of working in our health service is just how international it is and um, being able to take on board the experiences from um, colleagues who are from Italy or from Iran, you know, to kind of peel our eyes back as to what's going on. Because I think, um, I think those colleagues, you know, were able to at least help us do what we could early on. And I'm, I'm really grateful. For it. It's interesting also that um, what normally guides us is a bedrock of, of epidemiology or, or science behind us, which we didn't have. I'm interested in how people reflected on the that did come out of Hubei province in China, which I think touched on the, the experience of a dialysis unit in, in Wuhan and actually talked about the risk of, of not just of coronavirus as a direct cause of morbidity and mortality, but also from patients missing sessions and, um, and reducing their dialysis frequency. And I guess my question for all of us is, is really around whether we, how we reflect on the, the available data to us to help us prepare for this. I, I didn't see much evidence from dialysis units beyond what came out of Hubei, but um, any other thoughts? Of patients not wanting to come to dialysis, are you saying, or reducing? Because no, some parts of the country actively reduce sessions to protect. Yes, no, I know that, but it's just it's just more sort of reflecting on, on what what tools we had to prepare ourselves, and actually that you know 
we normally would look to the science for this, but there wasn't a huge amount of data. And was anybody aware there's a lot of, you know, talk and, 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 and information shared from Lombardy and other regions, but it just felt that we didn't really have much in the way of scientific evidence or epidemiological evidence to guide our preparation in the UK. But I just wonder how we reflect on that now, or whether I've got my facts right, or perhaps there was data out there that we should maybe um, uh, think, so, think about. So I can just say that within the Reno Association, um, there was Paul Cockwell, one of uh, one of the leaders. He basically worked um, on on quality and delivering standards, um, and so there was data shared from here from Germany, in fact, who were also relatively early hit, and those really informed the guidance that was applied in this country. But hard epidemiological science, no, we didn't have that, and and it was. And and these data didn't necessarily help the people on the ground who had moved to move staff around, plan transport, think about uh, think about how to deal with last minute action. I remember in in, in the site I work in that uh, one day to another the company we had engaged just decided to not do it anymore. <laughs> so in the midst because they decided they just can't, it's too risky, and that was it. So these kinds of last minute actions. To, to actually cope with them was really, really hard. And I think there was a lot of that going on in London and uh, between end of March, beginning of April. I, th- I think it's important also to recognise that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit younger than some, some of you on the, uh, on the discussion today, but I don't think in any of our lifetimes we've had to manage something without any evidence or, or, or any epidemiological evidence. And although to some extent we may have been working off, you know, on the hoof, that was... I think that was the only option we had at the time, um, and it felt uncomfortable. But it, but I don't think there was no other. There was there wasn't another way out of the the problem. And I just I just um, hope and pray that if there is a second second peak, and then a lot of the uh, learning that we've we've already done, we can really use and benefit from to make things a little bit less impactful and less disturbing for the for the for the patients who actually aren't affected. I think that's the um, that's the other key point. Um, I would say also that the local leadership tried really hard to make the best with the data they had. So I saw a lot of things happening, not at registry level, but within London and, and within the network, people really trying to help each other share information, try to pre-anticipate needs, try to plan. Um, I think John is probably more aware about the discussions of dialysis, how many people will be on that renal replacement therapy as a result of the epidemic and, and how that affects patients. Oh, well, that's, yeah. a, very, that's a very interesting question, Dorothea. Um, and the, the sort of the tail end effect on renal services as well as this front end effect. Maybe I'll address that and then I'll kind of give also another question I have. I think we're definitely seeing a number of patients who are recovering from COVID pneumonia who require renal replacement therapy during their illness, who are having a prolonged duration of renal replacement therapy requirement after um, otherwise making fit for ICU discharge. Some of them still have an oxygen requirement. There are also patients who are weaning on a track you'll eventually get better. Um, I don't think we know. I know there's one case series of biopsies, which is a little bit inconsistent in the variety of changes seen because obviously AKI is a heterogeneous condition. Um, but I'm, um, I'm, I'm uncertain how many of those will recover. I think I would assume the majority will do. It depends on what really the underlying etiology is. If there is an element of a sort of thrombotic microangiopathy type picture, rather than just classical sepsis-induced AKI, that may retard renal recovery, but that in its own right can recover. There's also the fact that many of the patients who've been developing uh, severe illness 
are requiring ICU admission have had metabolic syndrome type 2 diabetes. And while they may not have overtly had CKD, if we went back and forensically looked for microalbinuria and other um, features uh, of hyperfiltration, we might find that this was a group already in a, uh, at increased risk. And so that would need to be borne out. But really, this is a big diagnostic challenge for us. And the predominant reason I say that is because um, uh, patients who are suffering prolonged periods of mechanical ventilation, neuromuscular paralysis, heavy sedation, are undergoing profound muscle wasting. And so patients who are apparently recovering from acute kidney injury with or without renal replacement therapy, we're going to find that a serum creatinine is a very imprecise marker of whether they have got a degree of chronic kidney disease. And these patients are generally a lot younger than some of the patients we might have been thinking about coming through the ICU, particularly in ethnic minority populations already at increased risk. And I worry that perhaps more than a num large number of people being left on dialysis will find a, uh, an increased instance of the development of chronic kidney disease and eventually end-stage renal failure after, over the years in survivors. And there may be an opportunity here to find those patients, identify those who need ACE inhibition and other interventions that might reduce their risk of progression. So there's a real opportunity here to do some fascinating research. We may need better tools uh, to assess renal function in these patients. And we, as you say, this is a disease that we're still seeing evolving. And we don't uh, really know how the natural history will play out. I'm skeptical that biopsy studies will provide us with a lot of data. I think it's going to be large epidemiological data that will help us with this group. And the, and the nature of the AKI in this population is very heterogeneous. There was a lot of debate about things like fluid balance earlier on, uh, which we might have overcooked in the negative fashion. And that was the people were worried that we were precipitating more acute kidney injury. On the other hand, fluid overload is also bad for your kidneys as it's high PEEP mechanical ventilation, um, and we've kind of been finding our way with that. There's a whole issue of coagulation as well. But that kind of is where I see about the sort of the breed or cases we've had in ICU. And to summarize, about 20% uh, of patients in ICU are needing renal replacement therapy nationally and in our unit. And you can add on to that another 5% or so of end-stage renal failure patients who make it into the ICU by... Uh, whatever criteria are being applied. And uh, in nationally, they're, they're quoted a survival rate of maybe around about 25%. However, the experience locally is the mortality seems to be a bit lower. However, not all these patients are out of ICU and completed their clinical episode. And certainly pre-COVID, we see a lot of late death in people who receive renal replacement therapy in the ICU. And it's actually, it may be the survivors who've had acute kidney injury not requiring renal replacement therapy are the group where there's going to be more uh, opportunity for intervention uh, in the future and monitoring for chronic kidney disease. But this kind of brings me around to the other point I had. So what we found, I think we've admitted about 15 patients with end-stage renal failure to the Royal London ICU, and of which I think about five have died, and there are a number who are still in hospital and by no means out of the woods. Um, so in fact, the mortality rate in end-stage renal failure patients who've got into the ICU uh, is uh, certainly comparable uh, and may even be better 
than those with AKI with acute kidney injury. Now, of course, they're probably less sick. They don't necessarily have multi-organ failure because they have pre-existing renal dysfunction. Uh, but there has been a kind of relatively widespread opinion that uh, patients with significant comorbidity should be very closely evaluated for benefit in terms of admission to ICU. And obviously, being an end-stage renal failure patient is particularly a vert form of comorbidity. And this has resulted, I think, particularly in smaller ICUs in um, some sort of difference of opinion, perhaps between nephrologists and intensivists about the benefit of critical care. And I sort of sit a little bit between these two stools. Overall, the mortality rate is extremely high in patients receiving renal replacement therapy in the ICU, but most of those are multi-organ failure patients. And I certainly might be actually more prone to give renal replacement therapy to an end-stage renal failure patient who needed single organ support, certainly basic respiratory support, and was otherwise had a pretty good performance status. So not patients who are perhaps on more palliative dialysis, but patients who are at least candidates for renal transplantation, who are um, independent and otherwise fit and well, uh, I don't think should be, and certainly hasn't been our policy, to consider they're inappropriate for ICU. But I'm wondering if colleagues around had had different base discussions, um, uh, particularly during the height of the epidemic. Um, I'm not being critical of anybody. I think that there was a very, uh, we've been under extremely unusual pressures, but it's obviously a uh, an area that there's been a lot of uh, anxiety in the renal community about. Well, there was a decision tool that was handed out about who benefits from ICU. I don't know what data it was based upon, but their renal replacement therapy itself only had one negative point, whereas frailty had much the highest weight. So if you were very frail, that counted against you much more than whether you were just on dialysis. But it's interesting, though, though that renal replacement therapy actually got onto that document. I thought that was never mind sort of what points were attributed. I just thought the mere presence of that was quite interesting. Dorothea, can I ask if there's any um, evidence of any variation in um, ICU admission on either ICNARC or registry data? I suspect not. It's not that many patients. So ICNARC at the moment is so busy doing national analysis that they haven't linked to us yet, even though they said they would. But um, yeah, they've, they've not actually got that many patients on their, on their books um, it's now in the last in the last week's report that you can download online yourself. Um, there you see that the actual number who started out um, with renal replacement therapy were like two to two percent of the entire data set. But then there were a lot of people who were not on renal replacement therapy who needed it during ICU stay. Yeah. Of those, so, uh, it wasn't it wasn't very good. No. So if 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 that's what you see as an intensivist, then obviously you you worry about these things. But it mixes up two groups as one: the person with acute kidney injury and the person on RRT. Will the renal registry data be able to pull out um, pre-existing maintenance hemodialysis patient survival rates when admitted to an intensive care unit? 
in due course. It's if if and when these data are linked, yes, then we can look at who was there, and and we also can uh, the one the data we currently have are the data reported to us by renal units, but we are also talking to PHE. Um, that's Public Health England, to try to get all the test results linked to our data set so that we actually have gold standard test results. And then we've got a much better handle on what happens by modality. Although, if you think about a transplant and peritoneal dialysis patients, these patients only get tested when they really need it. So the, the, the testing mechanism is completely different from what happens on dialysis, where people are asked for symptoms and cohorted. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Nephrology, and at the ISN, we are committed to keeping you informed, educated, and up-to-date on the latest goings-on in the field of nephrology. For more information to keep you up-to-date on fast-moving changes to the COVID-19 pandemic, visit theisn.org backslash COVID-19. There you'll find the latest recommendations and educational materials like webinars, global reports, and infographics.